Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and it is indeed a great pleasure for me to welcome you to our new podcast studios. And uh, we have with us a, a very important member of the firm of uh, Blaney McMurtry, our, the head of our family law group, Jim Edney. Good afternoon, Jim. Thank you, Lou. A pleasure to be here in your beautiful new studio. The new podcast studios. And we're going to talk about a very important uh, p- new piece of legislation, a piece of federal legislation, the New Divorce Act. And uh, I know that this will impact many of your clients and many of your prospective clients. So uh, let's start right from the top. Um, I have been reading in the newspaper that uh, one of the key issues that this new bill is projected to address is the best interests of the child. And in so doing, the court has been directed by the legislation to consider a number of different factors, including one of them being family violence and how that might affect parenting. So Jim, can you, can you tell me what, whether that is a new concept and how does that affect parenting? Thank you, Lou. Um, yes, certainly the, uh, the provisions of the new bill have some interesting aspects uh, to it in terms of changes that are suggested to the Divorce Act. The expansive definition of family law violence is probably one of the most dramatic changes to the uh, act if this uh, bill is in fact passed. Um, While it's been the case that uh, previously the court was entitled to take into account uh, um, violence or conduct of a parent uh, when making an order, the uh, bill provides that the uh, definition of family violence is now substantially expanded and um, can also be taken into account when making an order for what is going to be referred to as uh, parenting time or contact uh, with the children. This is a a fairly substantial change in that previously um, there was little guidance given to the courts in terms of what weight or effect they should give once there was evidence of violence, and particularly violence between the spouses. It was sort of plain and obvious when there were allegations of violence against a child. But um, the conundrum previously was what to do when there was violence between the spouses. Often you would have a circumstance where evidence was adduced in relation to violence amongst the spouses, and the court was left with no tools to address that particular issue, often sort of left throwing up its hands, saying, in effect, well, there's no violence against the child, so what should I do about that? So this this is a, a, a pretty substantial expansion. And I'll go back and say again, the um, definition of family violence, meaning uh, physical violence, sexual abuse, harassment, financial abuse, and psychological abuse, and the exposure, direct or indirect, to a child being taken into account is a significant expansion. And I'm sure over the years, once this bill becomes law, will have a pretty substantial effect on family law practice. Now, there's also been a change in the <clears throat> in the terminology that has been used in the Divorce Act. And such things as um, custody has been replaced by the word parenting. Does that make any substantive difference in the way the courts will approach this issue? I think that the hope is that it may make a substantive difference how society approaches the issue. Um, the, the terms of you know, parenting or decision-making have been used colloquially in the family law business for a considerable period of time, and they've been used by judges. Now, up to this point in time, the Divorce Act has referred specifically to the terms custody and access. The 
idea that the change of words that essentially mean the same thing can have a substantially different effect remains to be seen. But the perception is that those words that currently are used in the act, meaning um, by that I mean uh, custody and access, are so loaded with pejorative meaning that people just can't agree to them, um, may have some merit. And I, I, I think this goes to the, the overall idea that Divorce Act and divorce law needs substantial reform. And this may be the first step on that road. It, it certainly sounds to me like the court has, uh, I'm sorry, that the, the federal legislature has recognized the fact that there needs to be some significant amendments when it comes to the best interest of the child. And by replacing the words uh, custody with parenting and the word access with the word parenting time, I think we, uh, we see where the, the legislature is going, but they've also included some other factors when dealing with the best interests of the child. One of the things that they've included, which is interesting, is the nature of the child's relationship, not only with each member of the spouse, but with the members of their, but with their grandparents as well. And that's an interesting change. And why is that relationship so important? Lou, I, I think that the, the maxim that it takes a village to raise a child is particularly uh, apt. And we all know that children have many influences and figures of importance in their lives, and families these days have changed a great deal. There's no doubt that um, with you know the preponderance of two working parents in a family, that the extended family gains critical importance, whether that be grandparents that pitch in or other important caregivers who happen to be family members. And it's important to recognize that those people have an impact uh, on the child. And, it, and there would be a dramatic impact if those people, those extended third parties, let's call them, were excluded from a child's life. And the impact would be felt by the child. So it's a, a very good thing that the court is allowing, or sorry, the, the court will be allowed to consider uh, the effect that other individuals will have on these uh, types of relationships. Another factor that the legislature includes to direct the court in considering the best interests of the child is the child's cultural, linguistic, religious, and spiritual upbringing and heritage, including indigenous upbringing and heritage. Can you comment on that? I can. The, the test, um, as long as I've ever known it and long before I started to practice law, in relation to children was always to do what is in their best interests. And I often say that's the easiest test in the world to state and the hardest to apply. We have a circumstance where the Divorce Act, pr previous to this uh, uh, Bill of Amendments, had a very sort of skinny definition along these lines. And what the uh, legislature is intending here is a more expansive guidance for the triers of fact in order to tell them what factors should be assessed when determining the child's best interests. It's also the case, uh, Lou, that the you know, provincial uh, statutes that's, that occupy this, this field as well tend to have more expansive uh, definitions that the court has been able to rely on for a period of time. Um, I think that in, in uh, spotty circumstances in the past, in particular examples, these factors that are listed in the new bill being linguistic, cultural, spiritual, and indigenous heritage have been taken into account. Uh, but now there's an express mandate that they must be taken into account. And I, 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 again, think this is a good thing. One of the other supposed, and I, and I say the word supposed because I don't know the extent to which this is occurring now, 
is the availability of information to the spouses or to the family law enforcement office. And particularly, there is now the availability of uh, a court order to allow direct access to such things as income tax filings of the other spouse. Why is that so important? I think that it um, does a couple of things. The the first may be minor, but it's somewhat recurrent in, in my practice, and I see it from time to time is an allegation that um, altered documents are being presented so that people would present uh, tax returns or notices of assessment that they've altered or changed themselves and they aren't actually what had been filed with the uh, Canada Revenue Agency or issued by the Canada Revenue Agency. So the ability to obtain the documents directly from the CRA would eliminate that allegation. I think that the um, wider application of this aspect is in cases where Uh, Support is sought from a potential payor, but the payor chooses not to defend the case. And in that circumstance, there's no information upon which the claimant or the support recipient can uh, base their claim for quantification. And and by extension, obviously, the court would then have no ability to assess the income of the potential payor. So the ability to go directly to CRA in those circumstances to obtain the income information should result in more accurate and uh, correct uh, orders and awards being made uh, across the country. There's also some uh, indication in this new uh, legislation that there will be a different consideration paid to where a spouse or a parent lives and where, from where that parent moved and to where the parent is presently. How does the geographical location of the parents of the child now factor into decision-making by the courts? Well, I think you're talking about specifically when one of the parents wants to move uh, with the children and that move is of uh, such significant distance that it would affect the the ability to have um, access or contact with the child by the by the parent that's not going to move. And these are in, in our world called mobility cases, and they uh, historically have been very difficult uh, to resolve. Um, there, you know, this is a binary choice. If someone wants to move out of province, um, you know, if they want to move to British Columbia, it's not a, a, a case that you can resolve by half measures by saying, well, only move to Winnipeg and it'll be fine. Um, you know, once you move outside a, a pretty tight radius in a city like Toronto, the traffic and logistical issues make uh, an access uh, uh, regime or a contact regime uh, pretty difficult to implement if uh, a great deal of distance is uh, injected. There are certain provinces that have enacted uh, provincial legislation with respect to mobility. Uh, Ontario is not one of those um, to date. And what the provision of the bill is trying to do is create a framework um, that can be used by courts um, to determine whether or not parents should be allowed to move with a child. Um, This is in some ways expanding upon the uh, Supreme Court of Canada's decision in Gertz and Gordon, and in some ways creating a different methodology. And one of the things that concerns me about the bill that's before the legislature is the change in onus. Um, The onus will shift uh, to the party who is the non-residential parent, if there isn't a shared parenting arrangement, to prove that the move or proposed move is not in the child's best interest. And I'm concerned that that shift in onus will have a significant effect on many, many cases. And that is that 
parents up front will want a shared parenting order simply to prevent or guard against the reverse onus on a proposed move at some point in the future. So I have a great deal of concern about that particular amendment and the the, uh, amount of litigation that will cause as an unintended consequence um, in the future. Well, let me read you a provision of the bill that I think is important, and I know that uh, it's one of your tenets as well. The bill now as drafted says that it does require any legal advisor, I presumably a lawyer, to encourage the person to attempt to resolve matters through the through that process unless the circumstances of the case are such a nature that it would clearly not be appropriate to do so. So they speak of resolution, they speak of mediation, they speak of collaboration. Why are those terms so important? I think think the terms are important and I also think the concept is very important. Um, Before uh, this uh, bill, the, under the Divorce Act, the court had no ability to require the parties to a case to attend mediation. Mediation in Ontario in family law matters is strictly a voluntary exercise. So there are cases that cry out for it. There are cases where it's plain and obvious that just talking this through with someone who has a, a, a good deal of understanding in relation to either the financial issues or the child-related issues could result in a resolution of a case without protracted litigation. We have, you know, for many years in Ontario had mandatory mediation for matters of civil law, for commercial litigation and things of that nature, but family law has been specifically exempted in Ontario from that process. My view is that the provisions of the Divorce Act are a very good thing and hopefully the province of Ontario will enact legislation to allow for uh, expanded ADR type processes uh, to be engaged in family law. I, I do think that the adversarial system, which the court system is by its very nature and needs to be under our law, is ill-suited to deal with family law matters. The more family law matters that we can collectively get out of court and into some kind of alternative dispute resolution process, whether it be negotiation, whether it be mediation, collaborative law, the better. It'll be better for families. It'll be better for children. Certainly, this, uh, this, this new piece of legislation does contain some very positive-looking, forward-looking uh, legislation, and uh, hopefully things will get better out there for those people who seek a divorce. And what do you think, Jim? I think this is the first step on a long journey. I think that there are a number of things that can be said that are positive about the bill that are intended to address um, systemic difficulties that family law um, uh, litigants experience in Canada at present. There's no doubt that family law is a ripe opportunity, a target-rich opportunity, if you will, for improvement. There are many things that can be done. The court system is clearly overburdened, and um, particularly so given the cost of family law litigation. We have a circumstance now where you know, the, the estimates are 75 to 80% of family law cases in Ontario that are before the court do not have lawyers involved. That means judges are taking an enormous amount of time dealing with self-represented litigants and their matters before the court that usually counsel would be able to streamline. But many people, and obviously by the sounds of it, most people do not have the financial resources to afford to retain counsel. So anything that can be done to improve this process, streamline it, make it faster, make it better, gets my applause.
Thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. And hopefully what you've said uh, will, in fact, occur. Thank you, Lou.